permission? <laughs> so uh, I have two grandchildren, and we, uh, our, our oldest son is married to a beautiful gal named Crystal, whose parents are longtime members here, and they've been friends of ours, uh, Eli and Sheila Tanksley. Do you know the Tanksleys? They're wonderful, wonderful people. Anyway, so their daughter married my son, and, and they have two little beautiful kids, a boy and a girl. And so the little boy Samuel, who's a little over two, was over at Grandma Sheila's house the other day in the pantry. He loves the pantry, likes to eat. And uh, he saw some napkins, and uh, they were na- and it said, Happy Birthday on it. So he said, Grandma, Happy Birthday in his two-year-old voice, and she said, that's right, Sam, that is wonderful. Who made you so smart? And he said, Jesus. <laughs> and my point in sharing that with you is to just make it clear, my grandson is so much better than yours. <laughs> Write that down. <laughs> I tell you, the grandkids are everything you hear about. You know, they tell you when... When you get the, the grandkids out, what a joy and delight it is. And it's wonderful because you get to give them back to their parents. He has a little sister named Hadley. She's a doll. She smiles and lights up the room. Put, did you hear that story? Yeah, she, 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 you did what? Oh, yes, yeah, that's my wife. She, her attendance has been horrible. And uh, so that's why I didn't know she was here. But there she is. She sits in the back so she could leave early. I know what she does. So anyway, uh, Hadley, this little doll that lights up a room, she smiles. But every once in a while, you can, um, there are very pungent smells that emanate from this little cute body every once in a while. And it's at that time when you say, I think this one is yours. And you, you know, you give them back to the, that's the way it is. No diapers for me. <laughs> You want to share any grandchild? No, forget it. We should do Bible study now. So we're in Genesis chapter 11. Are you ready to tune in there? Genesis chapter 11. It's a, quite a good chapter. We'll talk about it a little bit. In Genesis 10, while you're turning there, which is what we covered last week, we read about how uh, various people groups were divided around the world linguistically. And now in Genesis chapter 11, we'll see how and why. Now, you might say chronologically that's not in the right order. You would think Genesis 11 would have preceded Genesis 10. First, the reason for the division amongst humankind, and then the specific division amongst humankind. That's how it should be, but it's not. As God has seen fit through Moses, Moses wrote this, we got what's in Genesis 10, prior to what we're now about to read in Genesis 11. So if you're troubled by that, you can just bring it up with God. (laughs) So there. So here we are, verse 1, Genesis 11. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. You and I don't know what that's like. Language is quite beautiful and quite burdensome. It's frustrating if you travel to be in a place where the language spoken is other than that which you speak because you want to relate and connect. It's a barrier. Have you ever visited the Spanish church here? Um, it's, it's beautiful. 
sometime you should just go. Uh, on Easter, it will move into what we call the HRA, the auditorium on Hughes Road, because it's a growing thing. There are over 13 countries represented in the Spanish church. People from Mexico, from Ecuador, from Uruguay, from Paraguay, from Chile. It's magnificent. And I go from time to time and you say, why? It's just beautiful. The worship is beautiful. and But I'm frustrated because I don't know the words. And then when Pastor Roy, uh, the pastor of the Spanish church, speaks, I can only assume it's biblical. <laughs> I hope so. But who knows what he's saying? So <laughs> it's frustrating. But there was a day when humankind all spoke the same language. And it came about when they, as they journeyed east, uh, this is after the flood, so post-diluvian, that's the phrase we used last week. After the flood, these people moved in an eastward direction. They journeyed east from where? Well, from Ararat, from Mount Ararat, that area where the, the ark alighted. They moved east from there, and they found a plain in the land of Shinar, which we would know nothing about but for Genesis 10, which tells us of the first world's despot, a man named Nimrod. And he founded empires in places like at Shinar. So people settled there. By the way, it's Mesopotamia, which means the land between the two rivers or parts of modern-day Iraq. That's where Shinar is. And they settled there. And they said in verse 3 to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar and mortar. They wanted to make bricks why didn't they use stone? Because in that area, the plain of Shinar, very few stones. If you go to the land of Canaan or modern-day Israel, it's rocky. Stones all over the place. It's used in construction even down to this day. In this area, however, they had to fashion bricks. Two approaches to it. There are sun-dried bricks or kiln-produced. It's a, a hot stove. You can cook up the mud brick in it. It makes it stronger. On top of it, they used tar, the text says, and mortar or bitumen. They knew how to do this as a sealer. The point is these people were intent on the permanence of what they're about to make. They were serious about this. The bricks, by the way, that they used have been found today. Not the ones these specific people used, but people ancient peoples, you can still find these bricks. And they were about one foot square and about three to four inches thick. And they said, verse 4, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name. Let's build a city, a tower, and a name lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. So I ask you a question. What's wrong with that? Build a city. Construct a, what was probably quite an architectural engineering feat, this tower of enormous height. 
What's wrong with all this? Any thoughts? Yes, Rich. Was not God's plan. What was God's plan? Correct. That they move out, not that they hunker down. Listen, here comes the flood. Destroys everyone but the eight who found safety in the ark. After the flood, the eight begin to populate the earth. God makes a new start with them. Says in Genesis chapter 9 verse 1, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It's a mandate, but quite a hopeful one, because that's exactly what God said early on in Genesis. God said, this is my plan for you. Be fruitful, be multiply, subdue the earth. Now you have the flood. Survivors of the flood are wondering, how much did we blow it? Is God's mandate provision for us to be fruitful. Is it over with? God says, no. He renews it here. Post-diluvian, after the flood. Genesis 9, verse 1. What does humankind do? Humankind says, thanks, God. That is awfully gracious of you. What a deal. Thanks, but no thanks. We choose to urbanize, centralize. We want to make a name for ourselves. We're going to erect this tower, which extends into heaven, essentially a stairway to heaven. This is outright rebellion against Almighty God. The project is amoral. It's neither right nor wrong. However, because God legislated against their centralization at this time, it became wrong. But they wanted it as a unifying factor. They wanted to come together in some way of their own choosing. They could have been united in the worship of Almighty God. Instead, you see the phrase repeated three times in verses 3 and 4, let us, let us, let us. Not once, thy will be done. No, let us, let us. Listen, a tower reaching into heaven. What's up? Um, Some say they were trying to do this to somehow protect themselves against the possibility of another flood. That's what some say. Others say, no, uh, it's more like this. Um, They weren't so much trying to get into heaven. No. They were trying to snatch the privileges of heaven down, making heaven on earth without having to be beholding to God. So they were seeking their own fortification and glorification, let us make a name. They were seeking their own security, their own means of unity and harmony. These are all the prerogatives of heaven. They were seeking these things apart from the source thereof. We don't need God. We can make all this happen, figuratively speaking. We can reach up into heaven, snatch down its blessings. We could remove God from the formula of life. We can realize our own potential, and then we don't have to worship God. We can worship us, humankind. So that's what's going on. Now, by the way, this is not ancient history. This is called today's news. Um, So you have things that are also, I think, morally neutral. Like, for instance, I'm just throwing this out as a for instance, so, so... Withhold your emails. Um, 
the environmental movement. I think we Christians should be on the forefront of it. So please don't misunderstand. Uh, sustaining, making better use of natural resources with which God has blessed us. We ought to be on the forefront of that. We, we, we ought not to consume as we are so haphazardly and ferociously. We ought to be into the sustain, sustainability of the environment. Oh, it's no misunderstanding. But when you go beyond that and remove Father God from the mix so as to insert Mother Earth, then you have crossed the line. In fact, what you've done is created a new religion. It is, in essence, a Tower of Babel. It is a way by which folks can unify, but not in the worship of the giver of life, the creator of the universe. You find another thing to unify around. It's not amoral, but it is a sheer and utter distraction from what's really going on. Not only has Father God been replaced by Mother Earth in the religion of environmentalists, but the whole environmentalist, the whole notion of salvation has been, been re, re, redefined. For instance... I think my number one problem is what resides within me. Uh, By the way, yours too. I don't want to speak on your behalf, but you ain't so hot either. Inside, we've got big problems. We have a sin inclination. I am persuaded it's our very nature. I mean, when you keep doing something, after a while you conclude it's not an exception to the rule. It seems to be the rule to sin in thought, in word, and deed. I can't fix that. I'm trapped in it, troubled by it. I need salvation from what's in me. But environmentalism has uh, advanced the notion that we could save, that's the very vocabulary that's used, the earth because the issue is not within, it's without. It's on the outside. The real pollution is not what's in us. It's out there. It's in the air. It's in the water. Let's all get together. Build a Tower of Babel. It'll be our unifying thing. Let's all get together. Hold hands and clean up the air. Clean up the water. Let's save Mother Earth. Folks, it is a distraction from the real diagnosis, which is sin within, and the real solution, which is the Savior who came to die for it. So what we're reading about is not ancient, ancient, ancient history. It's a reflection of human nature today. It's man's quest for autonomy from God. So by the way, that's what sin is. Now, you may choose a different vehicle of sin than me. So specifically, we may sin differently, but fundamentally, we sin the same. Each of us is on a quest for independence from God. As soon as we get into let us instead of thy will be done, that's a quest for autonomy from God. None of us want to depend on him. We would rather be masters of our own destiny. So if I could succeed in planning and working out my plan so as to bring about a good outcome, I don't need God. That's at the root of sin. And it's in you, 
and it's in me. Autonomy from God. So that's what's in view here. God said one thing. I'm here, folks. I created the world. I'm the one who sent the flood. I'm the one who saved you. I'm the one who's enabled you to be fruitful and multiply and repopulate the earth. I'm the one who gave you a second chance. Hello, hello, I'm here. Yeah, thank you. But we can work this out ourselves. That's the essence of human sin. Autonomy from the giver of life. So they say, let us make for ourselves our own name. That's the purpose. We can acquire fame. We can uh, achieve our own glory. We don't need God. By the way, what they intend to build, this tower, is called a ziggurat. And um, it was pyramid-shaped, but not like an Egyptian pyramid. It it was like a stair-step arrangement. So the bottom level with all these bricks would be big, wide, next one a little smaller, next one, next one. So you would, you would climb up it. It would be like a stairway to heaven, that kind of, that kind of thing. And so God makes his instructions clear. People very clearly uh, rebel against him. So you have this is the first centralization, urbanization uh, of humankind, so they build this environment, and here you see the architecture, and I can see the fountains and the springs of water in the art museum, and we got opera and all, everything is cool. So on the outside, humankind is looking pretty groovy. On the inside, they're in blatant rebellion against uh, Almighty God. By the way, nothing has changed. So anyway, that's what's happening over there, and then you read this in verse 5, and the Lord came down to see the city. Uh, By the way, that's called the language of accommodation. See, the Lord came down to see. It implies from his vantage point he couldn't really get a good perspective. So he had to kind of come down and visit the city to see what's really going on. No, no, no. That's language for our benefit. God is omniscient. He sees everything from wherever he is. When it says he came down, it's not only in the language of accommodation to help us understand. I think it's also the language of sarcasm. Good night. They're building this huge tower. It's so tall. Apparently, it's not that tall because God had to come down to take a look at it, for crying out loud. He is the most high God. I think this is sort of a slam. I think this is God sort of implying, what do you people think you're doing? Do you realize I'm the most high God? So, he come, By the way, there's some encouragement implied in verse 5, and it's this. God sees everything. <laughs> there's nothing going on behind... Uh, closed-door meetings amongst the world's power brokers that God doesn't know about. I don't know about it, neither do you. Who knows what's going on? Boy, I'm glad I don't know what's going on. I know enough to know it's pretty discouraging for crying out loud. I don't want to know what's really going on, but God does. Our Father is totally aware of what's happening. So verse 6, the Lord said, Behold, they are one people. They all have the same language. That sounds like a good thing, you know, one world religion, one world government. Uh, One world monetary system, you know, doesn't that sound good? This is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Well, what's wrong with that? Human potential fully realized. What's wrong with it is that we will deify ourselves rather than deity, God, the one true God. So God is going to intervene to mess up plans, He's going to show them, I can interrupt your very communication channels. You who think you're so unlimited in your human potential, I'll show you how limited you are. Is it a punitive action? Yes, but it's also a loving action. 
It's God putting a check on man's intense, unbridled appetite to do his own thing apart from God. If we can pull this off, we can do anything. Who needs God? By the way, um, when you and I as Christians experience setbacks and failures, unanticipated, even tragic events, don't we have a tendency to say, oh, God, why? That's very legitimate, by the way. And I propose no simplistic answers to those big questions, but just a suggestion. I think God permits at times a disruption of our anticipated predictable plans just to drive us back to him. Because if life is smooth sailing, if all that we plan we do, then we will do more without making recourse to God. I'm telling you, we are prone to wander. So sometimes you get a very unhappy medical diagnosis. Sometimes you experience the loss of a loved one. Sometimes you're laid off at work. Sometimes you get that call in the night. Sometimes the hot water heater breaks and interrupts your plans. The most dangerous thing for you and I would be to think all I need do is plan it and implement my plan, and that's all I need. And, oh, God, if you want to get on board with my plans, you're welcome to. It can't be that way. And so God lovingly sometimes allows us to be disrupted suddenly, tragically, climactically, so as to keep us, what happens at times like that? We don't stand before God. We fall. We don't even have the strength to stand. We fall on our knees. Our prayers are not flowery at that time. I don't know if you can call them prayers. It's more like a cry for help. It's more when you you shriek and you say, Oh, God, I can't live. I don't want to live. I don't have the energy for the next breath. I have no hope. I can't go on. Oh, God, help me. And he does. And he will. And then on the other side, we say, praise be to God who has sustained me, who has plans for my welfare and not for calamity. But we don't say, praise me. I have the world in the palm of my hands. Whatever I think I can do, whatever I say will be, whatever I plan will reach its desired objective. No, instead we say, oh God, I can't take the next breath without you. By the way, that's the safest place to be, this side of heaven. On the other side, we won't need those helps. We'll be in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, a a regular and constant reminder that he is seated on the throne and we ain't. So the Lord says, they're one, they have the same language, nothing they do will be impossible for them. Come, verse 7, let us, does your Bible say let us go down? Verse 7, what's the us mean? Who are we talking about? That sounds like, that's like plural, right? Who is that a reference to? Anyone have any idea? The Trinity, say the people in here, I agree with you. Now, that does not prove the Trinity. Don't use this verse to prove the Trinity to a naysayer. This introduces and allows for the Trinity. It's the New Testament which clarifies and proves the Trinity. 
Here in the New, in the Old Testament, we're seeing things birthed. All these theological truths. One time I made the statement, there's really nothing new in the New Testament. This is what I mean. The doctrine of the Trinity, which becomes full-orbed, quite clear in the New, is birthed and beginning to be revealed in the old. So this is, uh, you know, some grammarians, a grammarian is an expert in grammar. How would you like that as your vocation? Holy moly. That's like worse than being an accountant. Any accountants? Let's see, Alan already nailed the, uh, the chiropractors. We get the account, we get uh, a grammarian. A grammarian say this could be called a plural of majesty. How many gods do we worship? One. But he's revealed himself in three persons. But that's not only, uh, that's not the only reference to his plurality. God is so perfect in all of his perfections. He's so perfect in the multiplicity of his perfections that we can use a grammatical term which we call the plural of majesty. We have to speak of him as Elohim. Remember I told you an I am ending means plural? Elohim. He's what I one guy one God. But his his attributes are so majestic and magnificent. We speak of him in the use by, by creating a new grammatical term, a plural of majesty. God says, Let us go down. Confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So yesterday two guys working on the Tower of Babel talk. The next day after this, one says to the other, Hey, Hand me a hammer. The other guy says, huh? So people who think they are unlimited in realizing their human potential can't even exchange a hammer. This is God bringing them down to earth. You cannot make your way up to the privileges and prerogatives of heaven. You couldn't even have a line of communication if I confused it. That's... That's exactly what he did. So, but this is the first, this is the beginning. Remember we said Genesis, Book of Beginnings? This is the beginning of the human potential movement. What's the human potential movement? It's everything <laughs> that has to do with uplifting us and putting God on the shelf. You know what's interesting to me? Uh, Hollywood people, and here I'm painting with a really broad brush, because I know there are some Hollywood people that are right on target. I just don't know of any. But, it, but uh, uh, Hollywood people, it's really interesting to me, who generally speaking live morally depraved, uh, unbelievable lifestyles with manifold partners exchanged on a whim, all kinds of moral turpitude in, in, from Hollywood folk. Uh, they always are foisting upon us... Uh, they're always parading upon us their humanitarian efforts to do this, to do that. To me, token nonsense. You know why they do that? It distracts them from their own internal environment. They actually persuade themselves, I have the potential to fix what I have broken. We have broken everything in the world. The human potential movement says we can fix it. All we got to do is hold hands and sing songs. We are the world. Sing with me. We are the... I'll tell you what we are. We are sinners 
potentially saved by grace, who couldn't even inhale and exhale without Almighty God. We don't have the potential to do anything but sin all the more. Doggone it. Put your finger on any place on the globe today and tell me how we doing. We broke it and we can't fix it. But the human potential movement says we can do it all. We just have to put our minds together. We could just fix, we could... Folks, it's sheer and utter... It's the Tower of Babel, modern-day Tower of Babel. So God says, well, I'm just going to confuse your language. There are about 3,000 languages in the world today. Do you know that? 3,000. They're beautiful. But what an obstacle to communication. Languages are punishment for sin. Isn't that something? That's what it is. It's punishment for... They all spoke one language, but now they think they can do anything. God confuses their languages. And so language emanates from sin, to tell you. I didn't say languages are sinful. I'm saying languages is what God did as a result of, uh, of, of human sin. By the way, do you know he's going to fix that? And a little glimpse of it was given in Acts chapter 2, beginning in around, I don't know, 13 or something. Acts 2, you can look it up. It's called the day of Pentecost. In, for us Jews, we call it Shavuot. Shavuot. The Feast of Weeks, because it takes place a certain number of weeks after Passover. Jews are in Jerusalem on Pentecost, Shavuot, tons of them. Why? Because it's one of the three pilgrim feasts. You're supposed to go up to Jerusalem. So they go. They're all Jews, but they don't speak each other's language. They come from all over the place. All of a sudden, Acts 2 says they were all gathered together in one place. All of a sudden, you hear this mighty rushing wind and Tongues as of fire settling upon them and everyone is hearing the other speak in his or her own language. Wow. See, that's a big, a hint at the reversal of what happened here in Genesis 11. By the way, the gift of tongues, which we argue about, um, do you know it's not actually a speaking gift? It's a hearing gift. They heard each other in their own languages. That's the gift. Uh, so anyway, uh, Acts is sort of a reversal. And then could I just share with you uh, the ultimate reversal of what happened in Genesis 11? You have to wait till you get to Revelation 7 to see it. But it's going to be quite a grand day. Whenever you get disturbed and gloomy and feel defeated and cynical, then hop on over to Revelation uh, and re- just read. You know, it's just like a victory story. So Revelation 7, listen to this, uh, verses 9 and 10. After these things, I looked. I is John. John is called the revelator. God revealed in a vision the entire book of Revelation to him. Boom. He did not to me or to you. Don't worry. He revealed it to John. John wrote it. We're reading it today. Isn't that a cool deal? So John says, after these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count. From every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues. Remember I said last week there are four divisions of humankind, national, ethnic, political, and linguistic. Hey, look at it. All are in view here. Every nation, all tribes, peoples, tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. What's, who's, what's the Lamb's name? Yeah, that's the Lord Jesus. They were clothed in white robes. You know what that means? Believers, everyone else need not apply. You're not there, except you're clothed in a white robe. Where'd you buy that? Oh, that's the point. You can't buy that. That is the symbol of sin forgiven and removed. 
You are clothed in white robes. Not only that, palm branches in their hands. Peace. Palm branch, symbol of peace between who? You and the one seated on the throne. You were an adversary. No longer. You're at peace. You got the palm branch. And they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Good night. All human categorizations and divisions fall away and humankind is united not against the, not, not around the uh, Tower of Babel, uh, environmentalism, the human potential movement. None of them. They're gathered around that the, the un, brought together the united in a common faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now they worship him forevermore in the same language, whatever that may be. I think it's Hebrew. I don't have any idea. So God's going to take care of stuff. So verse 8, the Lord scattered them abroad. So here's the deal. God is going to have his way. That's not the question. The question is, are you going to cooperate or be compelled? Those are the only options. They were compelled to scatter. If they cooperated, they would have found joy in it. Instead, God's will is, 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 is they're compelled to uh, comply. The Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the hill. They stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth and scattered them abroad. So Babel means confusion. But this is interesting. The Babylonians used the word Babel as the name for the entrance into their major cities like Babylon. And to the Babylonians, the word Babel in their language meant gate of our gods. Gate of our gods. So here's what God did. He had Moses find a Hebrew word. (laughs) There is a Hebrew word which sounds like Babel, but which means... Confusion. And God said, you want a name for yourself? I shall give you a name. Confusion. That's where it came from. By the way, welcome to today's world. Confusion. This is not ancient history. No, no. This is sociologically accurate. It applies today. Why? Because human nature has not changed. We are so confused. We do not know who should be suitable partners in marriage. We're confused. Forget about theology just for a second. Just sheer and utter biology ought to be enough to clear up the confusion about what two people make suitable life partners for the covenant of marriage. Apparently, we're so confused about it, we don't know. Apparently, we're so confused about a baby birthed and wombed that we think if the baby was birthed under less than ideal circumstances, we should snuff out its life. And apparently that's legal. Forget about the Bible. That's just very confusing, morally speaking. Apparently we're so confused that our government thinks we should support them in continuing to raise our debt ceiling. Even now... We're owned by people who don't like us very much. If you ran your personal finances that way, you would not be here today. You would be incarcerated. 
So our government is committing economic immorality with this indebtedness that no party has a commitment to deal with because they're not electable if they start cutting stuff. And we're going to pass that on to the next generation. Your kids and mine are now sitting on an economic house of cards. They're not going to be able to get out of this. So I'm no economist. I'm no biologist. I'm no nobody. But what about a little sanctified common sense? Doggone it. We're confused. It's babble for crying out loud. So today we call what's right wrong. And we call what's wrong right. That's called babble. This is a brilliant sociological treatise. This tells us about contemporary society. Why? Because human nature has not changed one darn bit. So first in this chapter, you got what man did. After that, we saw what God did. And now how does the chapter end? From verses 10 to the conclusion of the chapter, it ends with another genealogy. Isn't that fun? Well, actually, it's not another genealogy. It's a repetition of one we've already familiarized ourselves with. In Genesis 10, it's the genealogy through Shem. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, Japheth. In Genesis 10, we saw who came from them. But it wasn't in that order, interestingly. First, we read about Japheth. Second, Ham. Only third, Shem. I mentioned to you, it's a Hebrew approach. You dispense with the less significant first so as to remain focused on what's more significant. So first we read about Japheth's descendants, Europeans. Then we read about Ham's, Africans and others. And then we read about Shem, Shemites, Semites, Jews and their neighbors, Arabs. Why a focus of attention on Shem? Who comes from the line of Shem? The Lord Jesus does. The messianic line. So take a gander with me. Verse 10. These are the records of the generations of Shem. He was 100 years old. He became the father of Arpachshad two years after the flood. Shem lived 500 years after he became the father of Arpachshad. And he had other sons and daughters. And Arpachshad, it goes on. I'm going to spare you reading this to you, but ask you to just skip with me. How about to, oh, let's go to verse 23. How about that? And Serug lived 200 years after he became the father of Nahor. And he had other sons and daughters. And Nahor lived 29 years and became the father of, have you ever heard of that guy? Terah? Folks, from this point on in Genesis, there'll be a focus of attention on those who are in the line of descent from Terah. Why? Hang in there. Verse 25, Nahor lived 119 years. He became the father of Terah, and he had other sons and daughters. And Terah lived 70 years and became the father of? That's why we're focused on Terah's line. Avram, or Abram, who will be under covenant, Abraham is the one whose line contains Messiah Jesus. That's why we're focused here on Abram. Verse 27, these are the records of the generations of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran became the father of Lot. Have you ever heard of Lot? 
These guys are going to be really significant in the rest of Genesis. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his birth in Ur of the Chaldees. Abram grew up in a place called Ur of the Chaldees. That's lower Mesopotamia, again, parts of modern-day Iraq. Just as a little uh, sidelight, what were Abraham's roots like? If you turn to Joshua chapter 24, verse 2, we get a glimpse. I'll read it to you. Joshua 24, verse 2. Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, From ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, namely Terah. We just read about him. The father of Abraham and the father of Nahor. And they served other gods. That's the roots of the great patriarch, Abraham, the one held in esteem by the world's three great monotheistic religions. Abraham grew up in an idolatrous environment and was himself probably an idol worshiper. That is very encouraging to me. What's your background? Would you like to come up and proudly tell us about all the stuff you've experienced? Would you like to? Let's take turns. We could not tolerate each other if we knew that much. I love this. God did not recruit this guy from the choir loft. He was an idolater. I got some dark stuff, so do you. But I'm new in Christ Jesus, and so are you. The past is the past. God gets a lot of glory to bring us from all that nonsense, let me tell you that. So it says here in verse 29, Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. Have you ever heard of her? The name means princess. She probably came from high social standing in Ur of the Chaldees. And the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. I have two sisters. One of my sister's middle names is Milcah, right there. The daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. And Sarai was barren. She had no child. That's going to become quite an important thing, isn't it? as we go on into Genesis. And Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan. And they went as far as Haran and settled there. It's a mysterious question. Why did they settle there? God told them, go to Canaan. What modern-day country is Canaan? Israel. Why'd they stop at Haran? I don't know. We guess at it. Some people say, you know, you try moving a lot of herds and sheep and flocks 600 miles from Ur to Haran. You get tuckered out. Terah needed a break. Aye, maybe. Other people are not so kind to Terah. They say, you know, he was like one of these, the equivalent of a lukewarm Christian. <laughs> All right, he's out of Ur of the Chaldees, but he's not ready to, to live like a promised land person yet. So he's like a halfway guy. He stops off at Haran. I don't know the answer. But anyway, that's where they stay. Verse 32. The days of Terah were 205 years and Terah died. He never made it to the promised land. He died in Haran. So what's the point? Uh, God made a start with humankind. It's called creation. Garden of Eden. Everything's cool. How'd we do? Pretty bad. God doesn't give nine bazillion things not to do. He gives one. In the most perfect environment, God says, by the way, don't eat from the fruit of this tree. What what does man do? Boom. 
So, so much for the excuse, well, you know, I grew up in an impoverished environment. My school wasn't as well funded as another. My mother never breastfed me. <sighs> my father came to none of my Little League games. You know, they did none of that stuff. Man, it's called paradise. Under the best situation, humankind sinned. God would have every right to wipe out the entire human race. He does not. Oh, there's a flood for sure. Because human sin had become so horrific and terrible. But after the flood, God makes a second start with humankind. He repeats the very mandates he gave earlier on in Genesis. He says, be fruitful, multiply, spread out. There's hope for you. How do we do with that one? Not too good. Noah gets snockered. One of his kids has some lascivious interest in seeing his dad naked for crying out loud. Talk about ruining your lunch. That is... Then they do the Tower of Babel thing. You know what God does? He ends Genesis 11 with the genealogy in which the hope of the world will come. How would you end Genesis 11? Would you say enough is enough? You thought the flood was something? You ain't seen nothing yet. I'm wiping out everyone. I'll save a couple dogs. Because they give me a better response than you do. That's what you would do. That's what you would expect. That's what I would expect. Instead, we get interspersed with all this human sin. We get messianic hope. I'll take your question in just a second. But we get messianic hope. Where sin abounds, we get God's grace super abounding. Listen here. Some people say there's no grace in the Old Testament. God was angry, hostile, and cruel, and punitive. Boy, it's a good thing God matured, grew up, so that by the time you meet him in the New Testament, he's more gentle. Those are people who don't know what the heck they're talking about. I'm reading to you the gospel according to Moses right there. You don't get the ending in Genesis 11 you would expect. Done with you. You get, while all you people are sinning all the more. I'm planning exactly the right time when I will reveal the Savior of the world to humankind. You're seeking unity around human potential and your own towers and projects. The only unity will come by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he will come at the right time. And God is tracing out his line right here. Grace, grace. The nations of the world are dispersed. He chooses one nation, Jews. Why? Well, it's obvious because we're better. Okay, that can't be it. It's actually the worst, the, the opposite. I have to sadly admit this. We are the most, my people, spiritually privileged people on earth. How did we do? Bad. I was watching a show last night. Hey, by the way, I missed this thing. It was called The Miracle of Israel. Did you all see it? I, was it good? It's going to be repeated, I'm told. I missed it. I was watching reruns of American Idol. No, I was watching this other show, and it was also uh, about Jews. I think it was called The Jews or something. I don't know what it was. But anyway, Sigmund Freud was, was on. Well, he was, he was dead, but they were talking about Sigmund Freud. You know him, Sigmund Freud? He was on the deal. Sigmund Freud referred to himself as a godless Jew. How does that happen? 
How did, how did Jewish people entrusted with such spiritual privilege become godless? And yet the world is populated by some of the most prominent atheists. They're Jews. So I'm not bragging about any inherent worth at all. I think God chose us because nobody could better manifest human nature than us. Even with all the privileges, look what we've done with it. And through us, God has an opportunity to manifest his nature. What is it? I will not forsake you. How do I know this? Again, the last book of the Bible, 144,000, 12,000 from each of the tribes. Folks, those are Jews. Those are heaps. I don't know what tribe I'm from. Apparently, God kept the records. 12,000 from Asher, from Gad, from this, from that. And then it says, our faith is built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. And Paul says, God forsaken his people. He answers his own question. May it never be. So my people reveal human nature. It isn't so good. My people reveal God's nature. Oh, my goodness. Grace greater than all my sin. So God chooses a particular people group. He puts them in a particular place, land of Canaan. You see, maybe there were Canaanites there. Uh, the Jews supplanted them. That's right. You have a problem with that? Ask God. I didn't write this. That's what he said. He takes a particular people group. He gives them a particular land from whom he makes a covenant with a particular person, Genesis 12, Abram, through whom ultimately will come a particular Messiah who suffers and dies for no one in particular, but for any who will call upon his name. That's the gospel. That's the gospel in the Old Testament. After Genesis 11 comes Genesis 12 in most Bibles. And that's where God says to Abraham, I'll bless the nations through you. What do you think, what do you think he's talking about? Jesus, the Jew, who came to suffer and die. Good night. I want to show you one thing. Luke chapter 3. Can you quickly turn there? Luke chapter 3. If you get there, Luke 20, chapter 3, verse 23, you'll see another genealogy. Oh, no. Another list of names. But it's there for a reason. Luke three twenty-three. When he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age. Being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Eli. The son of Mathat, the son of Eli, uh, Levi. The son of Melchi, the son of Janal, the son of Joseph. And then if we go through that and skip, oh, let's go down to uh, verse 34. The son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah. You know these people. We just read about them in Genesis 11. The son of Nahor. We just read about him. The son of Serug. Ru. They're mentioned in the genealogy through Shem in Genesis 11. The son of Peleg. The son of Eber. Eber. Ibiru. Hebrews come from him. The son of Shelah. The son of Canaan. The son of Arpaxad. The son of Shem. We read about, we just read about Shem. The son of Noah. You heard about him. The son of Lamech. The son of Methuselah. The son of Enoch. The son of Jared. The son of Mahalaliel. The son of Canaan. The son of Enosh. The son of Seth. You remember him. The son of Adam. The son of God. Oh, genealogies are cool. You know what they show? 
If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you've not made a blind leap from logic to faith. It's really logical to see him to be the Messiah because he is the only one who is in the messianic line. Others don't fulfill it. This is his line of descent. It was mentioned at the end of Genesis 10. It's repeated at the end of Genesis 11. The rest of Genesis is going to be more specific about tracing the messianic line. Luke's gospel shows us all of this. It was important to Luke. It ought to be important to us. Jesus is not a pretender to the throne. The throne is rightly his. Uh, Reverend Moon and all these maniacs, they are pretenders to the throne. Somebody says, I'm the Messiah. Oh, yeah, real cool. Let me see. Let me look up your name in the genealogy for crying You understand what I... Wow, I want to tell you. And all along, hot on the heels of human sin and grotesque rebellion, God is interweaving into the fabric of redemptive history his plan to unveil the Messiah just at the right time. Good night. He must really love us. We have a problem with all of our human potential. We can't fix it. In fact, our potential seems to be leading us in the direction of more and more sin and confusion. God fixed our problem, but what a cost. Death of a son. What a cost. Not an accidental death, deliberate, planned from before time planned. Jesus died. Jesus fulfilled the requirements of the law. Jesus appeased. He's like a fragrant aroma in the nostrils of the Father. He appeased his wrath. You ever wonder, what are we saved from? It's from the wrath of God. We don't face that now. We're adopted sons and daughters. That is grace greater than all our sin. And you can see it in the first book of the Bible. All right, there you go. Some people had their hands up, I think. Yes, brother. Well said. What a good observation. Yes, it was different people groups that could no longer communicate. But within their own family, they still spoke. That, that would be my understanding as well. Yes, sir. Brother Dale. The, 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 say it again. The, Dale is asking a great question. Would it be accurate to refer to the Tower of Babel as the birthplace of false religion? I actually think it preceded that in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve clothed themselves with an apron of leaves. See, that's human effort to cover up our nakedness. That's the first religion. (laughs) By my own merits, I'll cover up for my own. And it is really systematized by the time you get to the Tower of Babel. Absolutely. And that's what religion is. It's an alternative approach to the privileges of heaven without having to make recourse to the God who says, I'm the only one who can get you there. That's what religion is. And all religions have a beauty to them. And that's why they deceive so many. There are beautiful aspects to Judaism, to Islam, to all kinds of such things. And that's why we get duped into it. It's like a tower. I bet it was a magnificent and beautiful tower. Ask God to give you eyes to see past appearances. (laughs) 
for crying out loud. What you see is not exactly what you get. Yes, Deb? Yes. Well, that's a great question. Deb said her understanding is that Jewish line of descent is passed on through the mother. These are all patrilineal, you know, through the dad. What's up? So here's what's happening. You're seeing a conflict between what the Bible says and what rabbis say. So the Bible, there is no genealogy that's matrilineal. It's always through the father's line, always. So would we come up with this idea that Jewishness is traced through the mother? Through the Holocaust, not just the relatively modern one, the Nazi Holocaust, but ones even before, um, Jewish, women, uh, Jewish men were usually killed, ultimately, but Jewish women had a better chance of surviving as... Uh, sexual uh, objects. So after the pogrom, the holocausts, what do you have left? You have a bunch of little kids running around. How do you attach them? Their dads are dead. Maybe we have a better chance of connecting with their moms because the Nazis didn't kill all the women. That's how it started. So it's relatively modern Judaism. Out of I understand this that has pretty much redefined the notion of Jewishness, tracing it through the mother's line rather than the father's line. But that always uh, troubled me or, as well until I began to read the Bible. Good night. It's always through the father. It's always through the father. That's a great ob- observation, really great observation. All right, folks. I guess uh, we better stop here until the questions get harder. <laughs> <laughs> I want to like step down at this sort of top of my game. At I'm on like the Tower of Babel thing, you know. Hey, next week, Genesis 12, Lord willing. Um, Lord Jesus, thanks for everything. My goodness, what you did is no afterthought, no Im- impulsive decision, was it? Premeditated. What a plan to save us. We are grateful. I'm glad for eternity to say thank you. I'm glad that we're off to a good start now. We gather together to thank you, to worship you. And we want to tell others about you, because there is no hope but you, Jesus, the God of all hope. In whose name we pray, amen. God bless you folks. See you next time.